we look at the bigger context of what happens in dream states, right, or, or what we're looking here, of course, is imprints that inform the relationship. So the first thing that you can look at there is, is that dark force, so to speak, that comes in your dreams still influencing the way you relate in your current relationships, business as well as intimate, right? So that's one way to look at it. Is it actively haunting you or chasing you as it is in the dreams or not? And then from there, you can um, kind of look at it from a few different perspectives. If the answer is not, then you could just let it play itself out in the sense that your subconscious mind is still processing something and you could um, help that along by something like nonlinear or somatic therapies and you could also help that along with dream journaling. Um, so, you know, but you don't have to because your subconscious does those things. If, it, if the imprint is still active and it's still chasing you towards certain things and away from other things, well, that is one way of saying that, then um, it might be interesting to go down the road a little bit more diligent and look at um, what that imprint does in your current behavior patterns. And that you could deal with by, you know, really looking at it like we're doing here, um, tracking it as it's happening. You could do some cognitive behavioral therapy around the, the actual behavior pattern, and you can do some release work, somatic or otherwise, um, on the, you know, on the subconscious level. Um, what's always interesting to do if you are looking at uh, dreams, recurring dreams, it's usually interesting to keep a dream journal and how you do that in a regular sense. There's, there's protocols if you want to do it for lucid dreaming. But if you just want to know why, why and how your subconscious mind churns these things up again and again, is you do it first thing when you wake up, when you still remember your dreams, or if you happen to wake up from the dream mid-sleep, you'll write it down, and then you, on that day you do a journal entry, on each day you do a journal entry of the general content of your day. And then over time, this is true for not only negative haunting kind of dreams, but over time what happens is you start seeing uh, correlations between dream material and awake material. So, for instance, um, I would say not anymore so much, but there was a time when I traveled, I'd always dream a couple of days beforehand that I'd missed a train or a bus or, you know, these dreams where you're trying to get somewhere and you can't get there and you can't get your feet off the ground. Or I used to have one when they still had rotary phones. I used to have this ongoing dream that I had to call somebody because I was dying my parents or someone, but I couldn't get that those rotary things to move. And that was like this horrible, horrible nightmare that would show up anytime um, a certain kind of emotional thing would show up in my life. So once you can correlate these things, 
then they make a lot more sense because then, then you can say, I'm making this up. Um, anytime you have a big conference or something, you start having that dream. And so then you can look at, is that particular material of work related to the imprint of a certain expectation or of a certain you know, relationship with your father or things like that? Or is it related to your current intimate relationship? So that would be a good way to go, uh, is to look at where does it still wedge itself into your behavior and then work backwards from there. Both the positive and the negative imprint have pluses and minuses, right? And so the things that we believe about ourselves via our experiences drive us and they hinder us, right? So if you are driven by the relational imprint that makes you, you know, fiery and angry and I'm going to prove you wrong, then that's a great benefit. The, Negative aspect of that, of course, is that it stresses your adrenals because it comes from a place of stress. It comes from a place of not good enough or not sufficient or whatever. So you're essentially using that, that the adrenal part of you, the negative uh, imprint nervous system part of you to succeed. And over time, that will create a burnout or particularly when you're in a high stress or high performance situation. So as I was saying earlier, those imprints never go away, so you don't have to worry. They're always available. But the difference between um, being gripped by it and knowing what it is, is that you can dip in and out. Right? So if you're driven by lack, which a lot of people are, that's highly motivating. Like, I, I can remember a time where it would have been absolutely impossible for me to go to bed without dishes being washed, right? Which is a version of that, because I had a very specific bend on how things had to be so I could relax, so to speak. And that um, comes with a fair share of stress because it's not taken the actual human being into account. But I still like the dishes clean nowadays, but it's not a must, right? On certain days when that's really not, you know, the, the best use of my time, I can easily let them go. And also I have a housekeeper nowadays. So, you know, so I'm paying somebody else to, to, to be obsessed about the dishes. But, <laughs> but that's, that's also a, a function of having stepped out of that pattern because the pattern is no longer connected to the performance piece, right? And so the other thing that you were saying was when you did the nonlinear movement and you felt good, you almost didn't want to move anymore, right? And just lay down. And there is an interesting aspect in there is that um, th that, that relaxation and that stillness and the feeling good <coughs> essentially makes you freeze, right? Because not wanting to move anymore means you're holding on to the state as it is, and you don't want the state interrupted, which in a certain way is a freezing of the state. And so if, if feeling good is connected to freezing, 
and, and stopping and feeling bad is connected to positive action, there's really no reason to feel good, right? And so how you work with that is that you do the feeling good, right? You work, you work with the positive. And when you feel that moment where you want to go into inertia, that's when you generate action from a positive place versus from a negative place. And that will take a little bit of internal wrangling. But eventually, the, the, the action comes from a place of actually feeling good. And then the feeling bad isn't so enlivening anymore. But that's a fairly normal and, and totally uh, acceptable, uh, understandable drive, right? And sometimes there's nothing wrong with feeling bad and, get, and, and, and kicking ass, as long as you know that that's a function of a certain kind of uh, dysfunction, so to speak, right? which we all have. And the thing that I want to add to that is, in that particular domain, if you have any, this is true in general, by the way, if you feel mistrust, you must heed that. Even if you're wrong, exactly. Because one of the things that's very important, and this is one of those tropes that come in the tantric circles sometimes, right? Oh, you, just because a guy looks like he's standing straight, he must be trustworthy, right? And you want to trust a guy because you've heard all the great things that happen to a woman when she's with a trustworthy man, right? And so you override your internal signals for the sake of getting something or for the sake or, or by thinking that maybe it's you right there's all this rhetoric around well you know if you were more feminine then you could surrender better well fuck that you know <laughs> and why i'm saying fuck that is when you when when the situation is right the surrender is is kind of a knee jerk when it's not a knee-jerk, it's probably because something isn't right, right? And so that's really, really important to understand is that when you go, you know, and you see a guy and, you, and there's something in you that goes, Meh, and then you go, take me, right? You're essentially courting disaster because you're overriding your sense of that something's wrong. Now, granted, I, I want to just add one thing, and then um, it might be that you're projecting or overreacting, but your body doesn't care about that. Right? That's the important piece. We don't give a damn about your mind's projection or anything in that particular domain. When your body says no, that's a firm no. And overriding that no is compromising yourself, which leads to less ability to trust yourself. Over time, you'll start aligning what's actually happening with what you're feeling. But that's a process, and in that process, that will only happen if you don't run over yourself, right, with your mind. So it doesn't matter at all if you're totally off base, somewhere in the middle, or right on your no is the most important thing ever. Right. When you're in a healing phase, it's a little bit like if I break my ankle, let's say, right, and, I start, and I've just gotten patched up and I can hobble around and I see these stairs up there, my body's going to go, don't go up there. 
right? And then if I go, well, but it's perfectly safe, I'm not going to sleep again. This is just, you know, my old trauma popping up. Um, yeah, maybe, but maybe I just shouldn't be jumping upstairs till I'm fully healed, right? Maybe I need to hold on to the guardrail till I'm fully healed. And there's no ifs, wins, and buts about that. Um, and here's the other thing, you're probably not throwing up red flags because the female mind is endlessly optimistic and forgets very fast. <laughs> so, you know, six months later, well, it wasn't that bad, right? And so they're, they're, if you see a red flag, there's pretty, I'm pretty sure there's at least something pink happening, you know? So, and not the other way around, yeah. So I'll say a few things about nonlinear movement simply so that it makes sense, right? So nonlinear movement is essentially the um, engagement with whatever the body is feeling and then subsequently releasing and so on and so on. There's, you know, you know different ways to deal with nonlinear movement, but the, one of the strong benefits of nonlinear movement is that it sensitizes you to your internal process. Another one is that it can, by the sheer fact that you're continuing to move, unfreeze areas where you have locked sensation or emotion or trauma or things that you don't want to feel or look at. Right? And so um, those are some of the big benefits of nonlinear movement. There's, another, there's many other ones. But so when we look at that, what we're looking at um, could be a few different things. One could be that in your exploration of what you're feeling and tracking things and perhaps releasing things, you come to a natural place of it being somewhat done, at, what, at which point the movements will get more and more subtle and then you kind of lay down and rest, right? However, we didn't do that intense a practice today. Um, so I doubt that that's what it was, but that can happen, right? An hour, hour and a half, two hours in, most people are sufficiently done, uh, baked, right? What typically tends, happen, tends to happen is that you allow your body to access things and the body expresses things and processes things and everything and then there comes a moment where you'll hit a threshold. So there it happens to people a lot where they suddenly get bored or they feel they're done. Or there's nothing left to do, right? And that's usually hitting a threshold. And when you hit that threshold, you have two options. You can just stop, or like you were saying, you just keep one part of your body moving and you see what happens. And often when you then kind of go a little bit further, you'll find a whole new reservoir of sensation and and recognition or investigation, however you want to go it. And the only way into that reservoir, excuse me, <coughs> is by keeping moving because 
you hit an impasse. And usually when we hit those impasses, we just stop or bypass. Right? You often see that um, in workshops or so. People are getting somewhere and suddenly they have to go to the bathroom. Or suddenly they, they really need to drink water as if they've been in the Sahara for 36 <laughs> hours. And there's no way that they couldn't be without water for another second, right? Those are usually the ways to pop out of the sensation and the feelings and everything. And so it's, it, there's nothing wrong with doing that if you choose to do it, right? You might go, you know what, I've had it. I'm, I'm done for right now, I don't wanna go any deeper. Or you can go, oh, I'm up, I'm, I'm, I'm up you know, for the next dip into the deeper pools or something like that. Right? Some people really influenced us very positively. They believed in us or they gave us some safety or whatever. And then some people, you know, not so much. And just continue writing those things and then just let it sit there. You don't have to do the whole thing at once. We did it at once. So you could have an insight on those things. But if you notice that you're avoiding them, some of these things are not that pleasant to confront for nobody, right? And so it's perfectly okay to only go as far as you can go and not push yourself, because why, right? These things are always there for the taking. It's not like they go away by themselves. So you can always find them and you can always, um, you kind of, you know, excavate them a bit more by looking at them and then seeing how you behave or, or what the internal voice is. Because the internal voice is always there, right? That part of us that when you stand and you look at somebody, you go, do they like me? They probably don't like me. They probably don't think I'm this or that or whatever. That's always there. And when you um, really pinpoint that, it loses a lot of its power but only do as much as you can. Well, with all these things, and you've heard me say this in different ways, is the um, actually being honest with what's happening is the entry into a different relationship with the body. And so, um, you know, when, when we were talking a bit earlier about feeling good and not wanting to move and feeling bad and really wanting to move, we have all these things, right? And so. Uh, when you feel fatigued, you pretty much, within your internal performance system, so to speak, only have two options. And one is uh, back up and get going, take another cup of coffee, stand up, move, make, open the window, get over it, right? So that's one aspect. Or the other one is collapse and, and somehow feel horrible about having to rest. Or if you're a little bit uh, more self-indulgent, uh, praise yourself for having taken the day off and done some self-care, right? Those are your two options, essentially. Yeah. Um, but of course, there's always another option, which is that you're actually reacting to the actual needs of your body. And that's a much finer uh, you know, determination to, me, to make. And when you make that determination, uh, then you can decide where it's really at. And what I mean by that is, so you're on your hands and knees, you start moving, 
which means you, and your eyes are closed and you're just here, so there's no escape from the sensations in your body and suddenly your body goes right, shit, you know, I, I'm really tired. So then when you continue moving and you explore and you, you kind of move tired, then in the moving of the tired, suddenly fine distinctions show up, right? And so there are distinctions like, I didn't sleep enough tonight, so I actually need sleep, or all I've had today is six coffees and no food, so you probably need some decent protein, right? Or um, I'm actually not that tired, I just don't wanna do this. So then that's resistance. And so each of those things, as you just move with, or as fatigue, gives you distinctions on what it really is about, and then you can make the proper call. One would be, I'm done, I'm sleeping. I'm gonna lay down, this is gonna go on for at least 30 more minutes, so I'm just gonna have a snooze, right? Or, oh, I'm quite fatigued, but a little bit of movement actually gives me, uh, you know, it gives my body the, the kind of a kickstart without firing the adrenals. Or, oh, this is just plain old resistance, so then that's something else to deal with. And so that's what's so good about that process is that you can fine slice what's actually happening versus the blanket statement that appears first. So this is why moving what you're feeling is kind of the, the, the mother of all practices, so to speak, right? Because it does so much. So let, let's say this, if we would only be dealing with the fact that we have imprints and the imprints make us choose partners, and if we would consider that everything is fine other than that, then yeah, you could pretty much work with anyone, right? So technically speaking, practically speaking, like Steve says, there's degrees of wrong. And so one of the things that makes relationship unworkable, um, there's, there's several things that make a relationship unworkable, but one thing that makes relationship unworkable is if one or two people in the relationship have actual personality disorders, schizophrenia, uh, uh, anything that's considered a cluster, so uh, you know, borderline, uh, uh, narcissist, um, next thing, not quite as intense as personality disorders, is unexamined or unresolved issues that are caused by trauma. Now, that's not to say that there isn't, you know, we all have trauma and we all have issues and we're not always examining them, but there is certain levels of dissociation which make it impossible to stay in relationship. And even though technically that's workable, practically that's often not workable because the person who chose the person with the trauma has a, has a corresponding trigger. And so what then happens is there's re-traumatization or opening of wounds happening at all times. And that's not really workable unless you want to dedicate your entire existence to healing your own trauma and not triggering your partner, right? 
So there's that. And then the other thing that's unworkable, so to speak, is, and I'm drawing a very rough thing here, right? Because we're not in a psych class or something. Um, but uh, the other thing that's somewhat unworkable on a totally different level is when you want to have a relationship with somebody with whom you have nothing in common, right? Uh, values that are non-negotiably different, irreconcilable differences, that's what I call it like that in a divorce, right? When the differences between two people can't be reconciled or um, uh, made compromises off. Like for instance, if you really want a child and your partner absolutely does not want a child, that is considered an irreconcilable difference and you can't fix that. Except if one of you overrides your needs and that usually, you know, it's a high pi pre, uh, price that both people pay because that doesn't really end up that well. So those are the things I would say are non-negotiables. There's a few other ones that are not that relevant for here, right? Um, active addictions make it very hard, right, for people to actually have relational, uh, proper relational consideration and, and growth. Uh, and, and, you know, a few other things. But aside from that, um, considering that a lot of what we see in the other person isn't really the other person, <laughs> right? Um, and and uh, that we expect things from our partners that have to do with our imprints, as you've just realized in that exercise, and we'll go into familial stuff tomorrow. Um, you can work things pretty well if you are both aware of what it is that runs you. No. That's definitely true. For me personally, having, you know, I've done over 40,000 one-on-one counseling hours, meaning either with a couple or with, I would say that where, where I question things in couples is, when it's destructive, or it takes all the way, uh, all the time away from the things that are really actually important to them, right? Their children, for one, um, gainful employment, their health, things like that. Then, it, then I think it's not really workable. Huh? But if we're just talking the regular stuff that happens which is you want something from your partner that they suddenly no longer give you, that's a given. That's welcome to relationship, right? Uh, so that's definitely workable. Um, and often those things have to do with our childhood imprints or our previous relationship imprints. <laughs> it's not very good news, but on the other hand, it's, it is good news. You can make things work a lot easier actually than most people think if you know what you're dealing with. But I also am a strong believer in getting out of relationships that just rob you of your life force and your ability to function in the world. It's not necessary. Yeah. There's more than one the one. I want to put that on the record. <laughs> Good embodied practice is, is amazing, right? And like you said, you go deeply in and it's right there and it frees all of this energy. But that freed energy and that, that 
generator of the embodiment, when it's not directed, disperses in all directions. So you're like the uh, um, nuclear power plant with the leaks, right? And so, so instead of producing uh, beneficial energy for all people, you're leaking out radioactive gas into your environment, right? So, and then you have to do everything that, that comes with that. And so, um, if you tend to be dispersed, then what you'll have to do is put um, directions into your life that channel the energy. And the easiest way to do that for yourself, because most of us don't have a handler, I have one. <laughs> Meaning, um, you know, in, in my creative output, there's a second person who can point it somewhere, which is really useful, um, because Steve will give a certain kind of a you know, brief, so to speak, in which then I can pour things, and the other way around. But um, if you don't have that, and I don't always ask him to do that, right? Lists are your way to go. And it's really, really excruciating because, of course, you're not going to feel like dealing with a list. But if you see the list as a funnel that brings your energy into something useful, it's a little bit like you know putting a horse in front of a cart and then letting it go. So you have to have a cart to which to hitch your horse because your wild horse is otherwise just galloping everywhere, right? So the lists or the, the actions are like carts. And you'll, you'll make a list of the things that you want to do during the day and then come hell or high water, you do at least one of them. You know, get the car fixed. What does that mean? Uh, call the mechanic, make an appointment. Call a second mechanic, get a second opinion. Uh, find somebody who will pick me up from the car repair place. Um, find the money to pay for the thing, whatever, right? So there's your, now you have things to do. And then you can pour all that massive energy into something productive. And then when it's done, because you hate it, you have to go, wow, that was good. I did good. This was amazing. I did a thing off my list. And then you make a big check mark, right? Usually when I'm at home, I have a list that says, get up. <laughs> Brush teeth, make breakfast, have tea. And then, you know, I list all the other things so that by the time I get to my list, I have the satisfaction of having crossed things off. If you remember the principles of why you had a list and, and not see this as some, you know, um, whatever, type A masculine behavior, even though it is those things, but it, what it is really is it, it corrals.